Good morning, all. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Lord, thank you for giving us your Son who willingly came and took our place to bear our guilt and our shame before you, to bear that punishment that we deserve. And, and uh, we, in turn, when we trust in him, we get forgiveness, we get uh, cleaned before you, and we get his righteousness applied to our account. What an amazing thing. Thank you for sending your son and then thank you for leaving your spirit with us until your work on earth is done. Uh, Lord, thank you that, that uh, you have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell in every believer. And uh, he works in our lives. He comforts us. And he heals us. He guides us and strengthens us and convicts us. Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would have his way in our midst and in our hearts. Fathers, we turn to a, a dark period in the history of Israel and we read about um, these final chapters and judges and uh, what all was going on at that time. And, and we can uh, look just on the TV or right outside the door and, and uh, read the news or uh, hear what's going on and, and we see that we live in times not entirely different from the time of the judges. and Lord, we need your spirit to strengthen us, to guide us through that, to protect us. Uh, Lord, we ask also that your spirit would work to bring many to yourself and bring a, uh, a revival in our country, in our lives, that uh, your spirit would work to draw us to yourself, to save many and, uh, and, and uh, be glorified in our midst. Lord, we... We are in need. We are a people in need. We're finite. We're fallen. And this morning as we come to your word, we realize that we can, uh, um, we can read this and it go in one ear and out the other unless your spirit does his work. And so we pray that you would work. Pray that, uh, that you would have your way. Lord, help us to listen, to pay attention. Help us to draw near to you and listen to what you have to say. And I pray that you would work in our midst. I pray that we would be sensitive and that we would be responsive. Lord, be glorified in our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn to uh, Judges chapter 17, if you would. Judges chapter 17. We've got just a few chapters in the book of Judges left. Judges 17, by the way, is uh, page 216 in your Bible, if you're using a pew Bible. And um, so we've, we've gone through and covered all of the Judges. And uh, now we've gotten to the part after the judges and they don't really this section of the book doesn't really talk about the judges it kind of looks more at the life of the people um in in the nation of israel and what they were like and what they were up to and and um the picture actually isn't a whole lot better it kind of keeps getting worse the farther we go in this book and and of course if you think about it in in terms of uh of the way the bible is laid out the author is preparing us and god is preparing us for a king who will come who will be uh uh, a shining light of hope, even though he's tarnished and even though he's imperfect, King David is coming. And, uh, and, but he's not here yet. But things are getting dark and things are getting rough and things are, are not fun to read. And, um, uh, but, but there's, there's a king coming who will be a little glimmer of hope and will be a picture of what God is going to do. 
And we were talking about the Davidic covenant in our high school, Sunday school class. We were talking about Second Samuel chapter 7, and that's where, uh, that's where God gives a promise to David uh, that uh, even though David is going to be a great king for the nation of Israel, yet there will be one who comes in the future who will be not just great, but he will be perfect, and he, his throne will, will last forever. And so uh, we have the, the Messiah coming. But right now in the story, it's not bright, and it's not hopeful. It's a dark and difficult period. And so we're in, we're in uh, Judges chapter 17. We're going to look at 17 and 18 today. And, and we finished, like I said, we finished all of the judges. So we're not talking about the people who were in leadership over the country. Now we're, we're turning and we're starting to look at, okay, what was the general populace like? Uh, the average, average people, what were they like? And, and we see that really the, the story is no better. It's actually a little bit worse. And, and, um, and that's, that's kind of scary because it's been pretty bad to this point. Uh, but as as we get going, we're going to look this week, uh, the, the title of our sermon is Over the Cliff Part 1, and the next week, of course, is Over the Cliff Part 2, and we'll finish out the book at that point. And so that kind of lets you know that at the end of the book, they are all the way off the cliff. This week, we're kind of looking at at the um, the spiritual decline or the spiritual corruption of the nation of Israel and what it was like at this time. And next week, we're going to focus on some really nasty stuff when we talk about the moral decline and what the people were like in their lives. And next week is a, is a super low point uh, as far as that goes. But, but as, as is always the case in Scripture, there is hope and there is, uh, there is a Redeemer even in, that, even in the midst of that. So as we look at uh, Judges chapter 17, we're going to look at three main characters. If, if you look at your outline that you have there in your hand, you're going to see that there are three main characters or groups of characters. First of all, you have this, uh, this guy Micah, and we're going to talk about this guy Micah for a while. By the way, his name in Hebrew is uh, Mikayahu or Mikayehu, and it means who is like Yahweh, who is like the Lord. Right, that's a very praiseworthy name. That's a, that, his mom really must have, uh, you know, loved God and had a, you know, had had high hopes for her son, right? And uh, so that's the full name, and it gets shortened throughout most of the story, not Mikayahu, but to to Micah or or Mika. And so it, the the Lord gets cut off the end, <laughs> and uh, you don't really see that in English, particularly in the the, the versions we're using. But but um, but that's the truth: is that the Lord has been cut off the end, and and uh, names are often shortened in the Bible. But I think it I think it's for a purpose in this one. It starts off with the Lord receiving honor, and then as you see the guy live his life, you see that the Lord is really out of the picture entirely, in a manner of speaking. So we've got these three main characters. First of all, you've got this guy Micah, and then uh, there's going to be a Levite who comes along, and he's going to enter the picture and stir things up a little bit. And then finally, you're going to have the Danites. And uh, the Danites, remember, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Dan. And so you have this, this roving band of Danites wandering around, and they're going to enter into the mix. And then, of course, uh, in the end, we're going to ask the question for point number four, where's the Lord in all of this? Where's the Lord in all of this? And, uh, and that's the question kind of that we're going to end with. But, but uh, let's uh, look at the beginning of chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And so the first thing we learn about, about Micah is that he's a thief. 
right? Mikayahu, who is like the Lord? Well, not this guy, <laughs> apparently, because the first thing we learn about him is that he's a, that he's a thief, right? He's taken this, this money from his mom and stolen 1,100 pieces of silver, which is an enormous sum. And that number should trigger something in your mind that that's the amount, remember, that the Philistine lords offered Delilah to sell Samson, right? And so each of, each of the Philistine lords offered 1,100 pieces of silver. That was a kingly sum. And, uh, and here we have Micah stealing that, that sum of money, an enormous sum of money from his mom. And, uh, and so... Um, why he did that, we have no idea. It seems sort of, you know, understated here. Oh, yeah, that money you were really fussing about, I, I, I took it, and here it is back, right? It seems to be what motivates him to return the money is not that his conscience was bothering him, you know, and he was in prayer, and the Lord was convicting him about this, but instead that he heard his mom cursed the person who took it, and he didn't want anything to do with that. So he stepped forward and said, oh, by the way, I, I heard the curse, and I know the money's missing, and... By the way, here it is. And so, um, you know, remove the curse, please. And so she does. And she says, blessed, blessed be my son by the Lord. And, um, and so uh, the first thing we learn about him is that he's a thief, right? The second thing we're going to learn about him is that he's religiously syncretistic. Religiously syncretistic. Uh, syncretism is a word we don't use a ton. But uh, when we talk about syncretism as regarding religion, what that means is that we are taking uh, other aspects of other religions and we're kind of meshing them together, kind of squishing them together with aspects of our religion to come up with something new, or to come up with a compromise, right? It's when we have worked the two together. Even though these things are, are disparate, they're different, they should be apart from one another. But syncretism says we're going to work those two things together. And we're going to see about this guy that uh, that he is... Uh, religiously syncretistic in this way. Look at look at verse three. We continue reading, and he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. That boy, and his mother said, "I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Therefore, I will restore it to you." And so it's being uh, it's being dedicated, being set apart for uh, making a carved image and a metal image. And then we see Micah as it carries on here. He takes that carved image, he takes the metal image and an ephod and some other stuff, household gods, and he makes a shrine in his home. And his name is who is like the Lord. And his mom blessed him in the name of the Lord. And here he is setting up a shrine and with a carved image and and household gods and all that kind of stuff, right? And beyond that, we're going to see that he's going to ordain one of his sons. Now, which tribe is he from? Well, he's, he's from the tribe of Ephraim. Are, are they a tribe of, of priests? No, they're not. The priestly tribe, the Levites, right? So he's going to take one of his sons, who's an Ephraimite, and he's going to make him a priest. He wasn't really allowed to do that, but it's something that he wanted to go ahead and do. And so, uh, so he, he does that. Right. And uh, and so he he takes his Ephraimite son, not a Levi. He makes him a priest. He does it in anyway. And this kind of fits in with the theme. Look at verse six of chapter 17. One of the themes, a recurring theme of the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this seemed fine to uh, to Micah. He, he wanted to he wanted to be religiously correct. He wanted to be blessed by the divinity. And so, and he even called the divinity Yahweh, kind of, right? He's talking about the Lord. And so he, uh, he, he does it the best way he knows how, I guess. 
and he makes these carved images, these metal images. He sets up a shrine in his own house with the ephod and the household gods, takes his son, who's an Ephraimite, treats him like a Levite and makes him a priest. And so we see that he's religiously syncretistic. He's just sort of mixing things together because in those days, in the neighboring, uh, the neighboring ca- uh, countries, the way they would worship is to set up a little household shrine and then they would have a big temple to their god and and they would have a little image to represent you know the direction they were bowing down to represent this god to them even though god had specifically talked about that back in exodus chapter 20 about not making a religious symbol to bow down to the second commandment so he's a thief and he's religiously syncretistic and then uh, thirdly he's opportunistic right he's opportunistic so his son is his priest and he's serving in his house, right? His Ephraimite son is acting like a Levite, but that doesn't stop him from taking advantage of a, uh, when a, a young Levite man passes by who's kind of looking for work. He fires his son and takes this Levite, right? And so look at, uh, look at verse 7, chapter 17. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn uh, where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes for your living a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite and the young man became his priest and was in his, in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And so here you have Micah sees this Levite come walking along and sees an opportunity The guy doesn't have a job. He's looking for work. So he fires his son as the priest and he brings this guy in and places him there. Right. And so uh, so he's he's kind of opportunistic. He's willing to set aside any kind of other loyalties when something can benefit him. And look what motivates him. What he says there in verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. I've got the right guy in the right place. God's going to bless me now. And so this is kind of the motivation of Micah, okay? So he's our, he's our first character. And of course, we've just been introduced to the Levite. And the Levite is a pretty interesting guy too, in his own right. It says that he's, he's uh, from Bethlehem and he's of the family of Judah or he lived amongst the Judahites or whatever, but he's a, he's a Levite. He's of the tribe of Levi, even though he's, he's living there in, uh, in, in Bethlehem or had been living in Bethlehem. The first thing that we're going to learn about this Levite is that he also is opportunistic. He's also opportunistic, just like Micah was, right? He shows that he kind of has some of the same tendencies as Micah. See, there were, there were certain cities that had been laid uh, or set aside as you read through the book of the law and read through the book of Joshua. There had been certain cities that had been set aside as Levite cities. And, uh, and because the Levites, of course, didn't have an inheritance, their inheritance was God himself, not some land or uh, you know a, a portion of the country or anything like that. They didn't have a, an inheritance in that sense. So the Lord was their inheritance, but he had given them certain cities that they could live in. 
Now that didn't mean they had to live in those cities, but those, that's where the, that's where the family would be. That's where your family would be. It would be in this Levite city. And of course we find him instead in Bethlehem. And now he's even wandered away from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, is not one of those cities. He's wandered away from there and he's just traveling, looking for work, right? And, uh, and so when he runs into Micah and Micah offers him a job to be a priest in his house, Right? It's, it's a little, little bit weird. We, we might not understand quite what's going on here, but, but uh, when you look at the Old Testament law and you look at the description of the jobs that the, the Levites were supposed to do and the priests were supposed to do, there was provision made for them to leave their Levite city that might have been remote from the central city of Jerusalem, might have been remote so that they could come to Jerusalem and serve in the temple, to serve in one place, in a unified place, and here you have this guy doing exactly the opposite, right? He's kind of wandering around looking for work wherever he can find it. And he takes a job as a priest in some other guy's house. So he's, he's kind of contributing to the decentralization of the worship that's going on. God wanted the worship to be centralized, wanted there to be a uh, structure to this. There are certain ways to worship the Lord. There are certain places to worship the Lord and it, with sacrifices and things like that. And, and the Levites particularly were supposed to be following that. That's the way they should serve. And we find this guy heading the opposite direction. So he takes a job. He takes a job as a priest in this guy's house. And, and uh, he's, look up in verse 10 again. Look what he's going to receive. Micah says to him, I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes, and you're living. And so the Levite, uh, by the way, there were described in the Old Testament what sort of payment Levites should receive for their services, and this wasn't it. They were supposed to share in the sacrifices, and there were some other things like that, but, but, but not, not like this, right? So this is a little bit different. We have this Levite being pretty opportunistic, right? And then later on in the story, when the Danites show up and uh, they try to steal the gods and then they offer him a job to be a priest, not just for a family, but for a whole tribe, he jumps all over that. He's happy to go with him, right? Um, he's, he's happy to leave his relationship that he had with the family, with Micah, and leave all of that and, and go on and serve them. So he's opportunistic. Thirdly, he's, he's also religiously syncretistic. This Levite, who should know better, doesn't behave any better. Right? He takes these household gods and the ephod and the carved image and the metal image and the shrine in the house and the decentralized worship and all that kind of stuff, and he runs the show with it. This is what he's doing. He's contributing to this. And so he's, he's religiously syncretistic in just the same ways that, uh, that the people are, that Micah and then later on the Danites are going to be. All right? So he's, he's, uh, he's opportunistic. He's religiously syncretistic. And then thirdly, what do you know? He's a thief. Right, the story doesn't seem to get much better with this guy. the uh, The Danites are passing through, and uh, we're going to read a little bit about the Danites. But the Danites come passing through. They stop into his house, and uh, and they hear, they recognize his accent, or they recognize his voice, or something. They know that he's from Bethlehem. They know that that's where he grew up. And of course, uh, the Danites. Uh, if you remember when we talked about Samson, where uh, Samson was of the tribe of Dan, right? And they lived not far from uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. They were in the hill country right there. And so they were like close neighbors. Okay. And the Ephraimites were farther to the north from them, but they were kind of close neighbors. They might've shared an accent or something. But what it says is the Danites recognized his voice. 
And then they go and they say, hey, what are you doing here? And they start talking to this guy and, and, um, and then they go off and do some stuff. And later on they come back and they remember that there were these valuable and important religious items in the house of Micah that the Levite was using. And later on they're gonna, they're gonna, uh, come in and take those and steal them. And the Levite goes right along with it. Cause he's after all getting a better job out of this deal. So he doesn't really care that the Danites are going to be stealing uh, all of these religious items out of the house of Micah, who is uh, the guy who hired him and who uh, is to him like a father. And so he goes along with it and he steals them too. And so we find out about the Levite that he's, uh, he, he's glad to go along with what they do. He takes the ephod, he takes all the stuff and he went along with the people. So the Levite is also a thief. And so this picture that we're looking at uh, in, in these few chapters, looking at just the average people of the nation of Israel, what they were like, we're seeing that they were, they were no better than the judges. And we thought the judges were pretty bad, right? And the people are no better. This is just a cross-section, and we're seeing, we're seeing that Micah and his family, they had some serious issues, and the Levite, and, and uh, he has some serious issues too. And now we're going to move on to the Danites, the third group of people here, the Danites. The first thing we're going to learn about the Danites is that they're thieves. <laughs> They're thieves. Okay, so what happens with the Danites is they are, uh, they have been driven out of their land. Uh, they, it says they, they came from the region where Samson had come from. Of course, Samson's from the tribe of Dan. We just read about Samson. And they came up from there and they were looking for a new place to live because the Philistines were pressing them too hard. They were being driven out of their land by the Philistines. So they needed to find a new home. And so they were, they sent some, some troops, they sent some spies, five spies, and they send them out and they're going to go find a place for them to live, right? And so as they're, as they're passing by, like I said, they, they stop near, uh, there at the house of Micah and they hear this familiar voice or familiar accent. They go in and talk to the Levite and they find out what he's doing there and, and that he has a job to be the priest for Micah. And oh, and by the way, he has these religious, uh, items. He has this shrine set up with all the paraphernalia that goes with it. And uh, so then they travel on and they go on up to this city of Laish, L-A-I-S-H, and, and they go visit it and they look and they see it's a prosperous city. And by the way, it's kind of remote and therefore unprotected, sort of vulnerable. Uh, it's ripe for us to come in and take it, right? And so they decide that's what they're going to do. And um, and then later on, as they're all traveling up together, the whole tribe is traveling up to go and take this city. They swing by the house there, and they have that whole con- uh, conversation with, um, with Micah about the household gods. Look in verse 14 of chapter 18. All right, so they're traveling along. The whole tribe is traveling north. They're going to go take this city, and they, it says, Then the five men, verse 14 of eight, chapter 18, the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. Right? The idea has been planted. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 armed men uh, who were armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us. 
and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest of a tribe and clan of Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods, the carved image, and went along with the people. And so you see here that this, uh, the band of the Danites, the tribe of Danites, the tribe of the people of God, they're thieves. More, more than that, though, they're not just thieves, but they're historically disobedient. Historically disobedient. Uh, if you flip back to Joshua chapter 19 real quick, Joshua 19, this will kind of lay a bit of a background for what's going on. What do I mean historically disobedient? Well, in Joshua chapter 19, in verse 40, there were, uh, they were setting aside various portions of the land that they had just taken or were about to complete taking, and they were dividing it up for the different tribes. And the inheritance of Dan comes up in verse 40. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans, and the territory of its inheritance included Zorah, Eshtaol, Ir Shemesh, uh, sh- uh, well, I got myself into trouble here, didn't I? Sha'alabin, Ijalon, Ithla, Elon, Timnah, Ekron, uh, Elteca, Gibbethon, Balath, Je- uh, Jehud, uh, Beni Barak, and Gathrimon, and Mijarkan, and Rakan. Good night. <laughs> I should have thought that one out before I read that. <laughs> With the territory over against Joppa. Now, there's a little comment here about what's going to happen in the future. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, in the story we're reading about right now, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, or Laish, and after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor. All right? And so they had been given a land, a place to dwell, and they had been given instructions, go in and capture that land and drive out the enemy. It's yours. Here's the map of Israel, and this is your spot. Go in and take it. And they went in, and they didn't really take it. They left, right? So they had been given instructions by God about where they were to live, and they allowed themselves to be beat out of that so that they didn't live there. They stayed for a while, and they fought for a while, and you have the whole Samson story, and who were his neighbors? The Philistines. That's who he was having problems with, right? And, and, and finally, instead of defeating the Philistines, the Danites just up and they leave. And so they're historically disobedient. They're thieves. They're historically disobedient. This is not, this is not great news about the tribe of Dan, but this sort of goes across the board, particularly as we start looking at other tribes that are going to be happening next week. And thirdly, that we're going to be talking about next week. Thirdly, not only are they thieves and historically disobedient, but they're marauders. Their whole plan was to scout out a big, fat, happy city that was relatively undefended and go and kill everybody and take their city. That was their plan. Now, that sounds a lot like the conquest, doesn't it? That's what they were supposed to do during the conquest. But the conquest was for those lands and those cities and those nations within the borders of the nation of Israel. But instead, what they were doing was going outside of the borders of the nation of Israel and find another city that's fat and happy outside of the nation, a city that God hadn't given them, and they attack that one, and they kill everyone there, and they burn it, and then they rebuild it, and they make that their city. They're marauders, right? They're just, they're just roving and attacking and killing uh, whoever they want. So this is not a, not a pretty picture. Uh, look at chapter 18 again. 
back in Judges chapter 18 verses 27 through 31 says this. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So finally, we learn the name of the Levite, by the way. It's interesting that it comes at the end of the story because the infamy of what he did and what his life was like is primary and his name is secondary. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. So he was, he was of, of uh, Moses' family. And so these people were marauders. And it, it's interesting how it, the way it talks about Laish in the passage, they were a people quiet and unsuspecting. They're the only innocent ones in the story of everyone we've met so far, and they were foreigners. So compared to Israel, these people look like princes. They look, they're, they're lovely, they're, they're, they're wonderful, they're peaceful, right? The people of God have fallen to such a point, such a low point, and, and, uh, and so these, these Danites are no better than uh, the Levite who was no better than Micah. So where's the Lord in all of this? Where's the Lord in all of this? Again, I, I told you that I like to, I like to print out the, the chapters and then I, I highlight and underline and circle and do stuff like that to help myself see because I'm pretty visual. And so I went through and I underlined the Lord or God. Not gods. I didn't underline that one. But the Lord and God. And it's only a few times. And it's almost always just in their reference verbally. Talking about him. Not even talking to him. But talking about him. So where is the Lord in this passage? Well, first of all, he's invoked, but he's not obeyed. Micah's religiously corrupt mother, who named her son, who is like the Lord, right? She invokes the Lord upon her thief son when he returns her stolen silver. Micah rejoices that he has maneuvered the Lord to prosper him because he secured a Levite as a priest, so now the Lord has to bless me. The Danites inquire of the Levite whether God will give them what they want as they invade their unsuspecting and innocent targets whom the Lord had not given them. The corrupt and mercenary priest tells the marauding Danites that the Lord will bless them in their ransacking of Laish. Where's the Lord in all of this? Well, he's invoked, but... He's certainly not obeyed. Everyone seems to be talking about the Lord, but no one seems to be talking to him or obeying him. Each step taken by every main character is characterized by self-interest. And one result of this string of events is that a religiously mixed place of worship would be set up in Dan that would be a rival to the central place of worship, which at this time was at Shiloh, and be a stumbling block and a source of division for the people of Israel. That's the result. That's the outcome of this. Where's the Lord in all this? Well, he's, he's invoked, but he's not obeyed. Now, as I look out at our congregation, I see here a body of believers who, who love the Lord dearly and want to obey him 
And I'm personally regularly challenged and encouraged by that. A warning to us all from our passage today is that we not slip into a pattern of invoking the Lord, talking about the Lord, but not obeying him. It's so easy to talk about the Lord. It's so easy, particularly to talk about God. And I use that, I use that word differently than the Lord. Becomes sli- can become slightly less personal to us when we talk about God only. And we don't talk about the Lord or we don't talk about Jesus. It's easy to talk about him. It's easy to call upon him and then forget when he speaks to us authoritatively and that he speaks to us authoritatively from his word and that his word is to be obeyed. See, these people that we talked about today were all Israelites to whom had been given the law and the promises. And in today's passage, we see them disobeying across the board. And these are God's people. So first of all, I I, I don't want us to be like them. They invoked the Lord and they talked about him, but they didn't obey him. And I don't want to be like that. I don't want us to be like that. Let's not be doers of, uh, let's be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive ourselves. Second of all, where's the Lord in all this? Well, he's worshipped, but not purely. He's, He's worshipped, but not in purity. At first blush, it seems like Micah's mother was doing a very spiritual thing when she dedicated this returned stolen silver to the service of the Lord. However, in doing so, she has the silver fashioned into a carved and metal images that were supposed to aid in worship. Even though the second commandment said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above, that is in heaven above or in the earth below, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Second commandment. And this is how she dedicates herself and her silver to the Lord. Several times in our passage, all the religious paraphernalia is listed. It's interesting. If you go through and underline that, how often all of the stuff is listed, it's again and again and again. The writer used a lot of ink to repeat himself in this regard. Several times. And he repeats himself lest we miss the point, the ephod, the household god, the carved image, a metal image, etc., 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 1814 and and following. You're going to see that all over the place. And here's what the Lord's going to say about that in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. He's going to say, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved images. See, they were, they were worshiping the Lord, but not in purity. Not, not, not purely Him, not, not solely Him, not only Him. He was, he was one God among some others, or He was a God who could be worshipped however they wanted, in whatever way that they might, uh, might have learned how to do from the culture around Him. But they weren't worshiping purely. They were just sort of worshiping Him. So what's our application? What does that come down for us? Where's the Lord in this? The Bible makes it very clear that there is only one way to worship God. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but by me. And elsewhere it says, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our worship 
is made possible and is centered upon Jesus Christ himself. He isn't a side dish. He's the main course. I'm afraid very many people in in our day think that they are right with God and that they love God and that they worship God when in fact they know very little and care very little about his son Jesus. And if you worship God without his son Jesus, you are not worshiping God. Folks, without the son, God should scare us. He's infinitely power. He's powerful. He's infinitely holy. And we are infinitely offensive to him because of our sin. His wrath toward us is too great to bear. And the penalty for our sin is inconceivable. A conscious eternity of tormented separation from God. And entered Jesus, the divine Son of God, who became a man specifically to take that wrath and that punishment in our stead. And by turning from our sin, from our self-worship, and by trusting in Him for the sacrifice that He has made, we can be at peace with God for the first time. And God doesn't have to scare us anymore. We can be at peace and we will be at peace with him forever. Why would we ever want to worship anything or anyone other than the Lord who would do such a thing for us? Worship of the one true God can only come by the one true way, his one son, Jesus Christ. So, the Lord has invoked, but he's not obeyed. He's worshipped, not purely. And he's honored, but only as a talisman. Only as a talisman. Micah's motivation for his religious practices is revealed in 1713. When he says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. I've got the right guy in the right job. The Lord has to bless me now. That's his motivation. And later it becomes clear that the Danites are after the same thing when they steal Micah's household shrine paraphernalia and they take the priest with them for good measure. They want God's prosperity to go with them. He's a, a lucky charm to them. He's a talisman to them. So our application for us is that God doesn't exist for our pleasure. We exist for his. May we never value the benefits of knowing God, the benefits of knowing God, the blessings that come along with being his child more than we value him. I've tried, I've seen people try to come to God for what they can get from him. And I always wish I could make them understand that he is the treasure to be sought. He is the one to be gotten not the gift from him. Don't seek his gifts more than you seek him. Know him as the goal. He's the point. He's not a talisman. He's not a lucky charm. He's not a means to get blessings in our lives. He's almighty God of the universe, and he has graciously made himself known to us in his word and in his son, Jesus. And my prayer for every one of us is that we would honor him in truth 
by making Him the Lord of our lives, by making Him the center of our lives. That's, that's where I want to finish in our message today is that the thing that sticks with me the most from this passage, from these couple of chapters about average Israelites at the time, is that they, they served the Lord kind of in word, but then indeed it was a little bit different. And actually they, they kind of took the Lord as a way to gain favor, a way to gain blessing in the world, right? It's like the idea of wearing a cross as a good luck charm, right? And I don't think any of us does that, but it's that kind of idea that if I have it on, I'm protected, I'm blessed. If I don't have it on, I'm kind of vulnerable. No, that's not the way it is. God himself is the treasure. He's the one to be sought. That's what I want to leave us with this morning is that offer that he makes to us in Jesus is not just an offer that we take at one point and then we go on about our lives. Our lives should be about him, centered upon him, come what may in our life, come good circumstances or bad circumstances, difficulty or blessing or joy. We can't twist God's arm into making our lives great. But we want God. We want God himself. Relationship with him, and that's only possible through his son, Jesus. And that's the hope that I find in this passage, because I don't find hope in Micah or Micah's mom or the Levite or the Danites and the poor people of Laish, they all died. The only hope here is God himself, God himself. So let us as people, as individuals and as a church cling to him because he is the one worthy to hold on to. Not because we can twist his arm and get him to do our will, not because we can get him to bless us. He'll bless us. We don't know how, but he will bless us. But let's hold on to him because he, he is the value. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, uh, I'm convicted by this, that sometimes I look to you for what I can get from you because I need comfort in my life or because I need a sense of uh, forgiveness or because I'm carrying a heavy load. And Lord, you do comfort and you do forgive and you do lighten our loads. But may I not seek you for what I can get out of you, but may I seek you for you because you are the creator of the universe. You are my maker. And more than that, you are my redeemer. What an amazing God you are. And we come to you this morning to cling to you for the sake of you so we can have you. Lord, we honor you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we go throughout our day and as we go throughout our week and as we come to times in our, in our days and in our weeks when we uh, when we're tempted to try and manipulate you or or think about uh, think about the gifts that we can get from you or the blessings we want from you more than we desire you pray that you would remind us and that you would convict us and that you would bless us to uh, think of you to think on you Lord thank you that you've given us your word and we don't have to be a people who are blind and ignorant we don't have to wander around and do uh, what's right in our own eyes you have told us from your word what is right in your eyes and that's the point. So, Lord, we thank you. Lord, this is, this is Thanksgiving season, and we give you very great uh, thanks and praise for your work in our lives. Lord, you are an amazing God, and you have taken care of us, and we honor you, and we worship you, and we bless you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.